and I appreciate all the work that all of you have done for that. And uh, this a meeting like this doesn't just fling itself together. It takes a lot of folks doing a lot of things. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you for giving us this chance to be refreshed every single year. I truly very much appreciate it. Pastor, thank you for having me. Thank you for giving me the chance to preach. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. Remain seated if you would. I'm going to read a lengthy passage of Scripture. You know it, but uh, we're going to take time and we're going to read it. And I don't want you to be stressed out too much before we start the preaching. So you just listen real carefully and we'll go through through it. 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons. And a man went among men for an old man of the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next unto him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself forty days. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp of thy brethren, and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand, and look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth for the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. Now fast forward to the end of the story, if you would please, pick it up in verse 40. And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a scrip. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. 
But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. And I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Came to pass, and the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David. That David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead. That the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. And Brother Eric Brown, would you ask a blessed reading God's word, please, sir? I love the account of David and Goliath. I preach probably more messages from this passage than any other. It's just fascinated me since I was a child and probably about everybody else as well. This is something we learn early in Sunday school and it has so captivated not just individuals but societies as a whole that we still use the terminology a David and Goliath kind of a battle. Whenever there's one team that is heavily favored to beat another team and the, the other team somehow manages to pull the upset, they call it a David and Goliath kind of a contest. When there's one fighter that's supposed to destroy another fighter and, and the fighter that's supposed to lose wins, they call it a David and Goliath contest. We're still using that terminology. Everybody probably has their own stories that they could tell of their David and Goliath moment that they've seen in their lifetime. My favorite one is as follows. I was probably, I guess, about maybe 19, just a year or so from getting my black belt and we were sparring on a Saturday one day and there were not enough older ones to go with older ones, little ones to go with little ones so there had to be a mismatch. And my karate instructor took a high school senior boy and he put him sparring against a nine year old little boy. Now you that know high school senior boys know that they are the toughest things on the face of the planet. Just ask them, they'll tell you. The only thing Chuck Norris has ever been afraid of is a high school senior boy. I'm just, that's just the way it works. And this high school senior was very indignant that he was having to fight a little nine-year-old boy. He was really upset about it. So he decided he had some fun with the little boy and, and make his displeasure known. So he decided to play peekaboo with the little boy. He got down on one knee and he started putting his hands in front of his face going, <laughs> What he did not know that the rest of us there were fairly well versed in was that this kid had grown up in the worst neighborhood in Cleveland County, North Carolina. He'd been fighting since the crib. I mean, was as flexible as a rubber band, could take a hubcap off a moving car, and was, a, I mean, I mean, as fast as a snake, and had a temper about this long, man. And when he saw that guy playing with him, I could see steam coming out of his ears. And then, as the guy was going, uh -huh, uh -huh, I saw the kid nodding. I thought, he's counting time. This is about to be not good, man. And he came off with one more, and that's as far as he got. The kid was airborne, came around with a full turning around kick, caught him right across the bridge of the nose. We heard, pow! Blood hit the ceiling, blood hit the floor, blood hit all the walls. Part of his nose is over here, part of his nose is over here. He had reconstructive surgery on his face, or as we call it, martial arts, coolest thing ever. I've, I've, I've never forgotten the day that little David took down Goliath but in 1 Samuel 17 we're not dealing with a sparring match we're dealing with a death match 
And we're actually dealing with even more than a death match because this is not just about what individual is going to live or die. It's about whether the work of God is going to continue to be paralyzed or is going to move forward. See, the armies of God are stopped right now. They're not moving forward. It is a paralysis situation, and everything is riding on this David and Goliath battle. Now, by way of context, you need to drop all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 8 to figure out what's going on. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel had gotten old. His sons are not walking his ways. So the children of Israel come to Samuel, and they say, we want you to make us a king so that we can be like all the other nations around us. Now, for the record, that's a horrible idea. If you're the only godly nation around, why do you want to be like all the other nations? But nonetheless, Samuel protests to them, and God protests to them. They will not listen, so God says, fine, we'll give him a king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul is anointed as king. He is described as being head and shoulders taller than everybody else in Israel. Conservatively speaking, he's probably a seven-footer or so. He's a big, strong, good-looking man. Well, things go well for the first couple of years. But by 1 Samuel 13, Saul's self-will is starting to come to the forefront. He specifically defies and disobeys God. Oh, he makes all kinds of excuses for it. People always do. But he has disobeyed and defied God. And Samuel confronts him about it. And he just about loses all the kingdom there. Well, two chapters later in 1 Samuel 15, he specifically disobeys and defies God again. And this time God says, I'm done with him. No more of this. I'm going to anoint me and choose me a king that will be a man after my own heart. I've provided for me a king among the sons of Jesse. So he tells Samuel to go down to Bethlehem, Judah, where Jesse lives. And Samuel goes down there. They're terrified. Comest thou peaceably? Oh, there's a prophet of God. What's going on here? And he says, we're going to have a sacrifice here. I'm going to anoint one of your sons as king. So one by one, they start parading all the guys before Samuel. And the inference you see is that Samuel's having to look up at them, especially Eliab, because God says, no, don't look on his height or on his countenance. I have refused. I've rejected him. Then Abinadab, no. Shammah, no. All the rest of no, come again, no. And now after they've come through and after everybody's been told no, they're just sort of standing there, getting a little bit awkward. <laughs> and it takes the preacher to say, hey, you happen to have any more sons? And just, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We got, we got one more. We got, got, got the runt down there in the field. I mean, I mean, surely that's not the one you want. I mean, you want me to have the big boys come back again? Let's check. No, God's already said no. Bring the runt. We can't do anything until he comes. So they bring in David, and the Bible describes him as being ruddy and of a fair countenance. In other words, we'd put it, he's a cute kid. Probably comes in chewing early Bethlehem bubblegum, popping it, has no idea what goes on. Walks in, and God says to Samuel, that's the one that I've chosen. And in the presence of all his brethren, he is anointed as the next king of Israel. Now, that's not likely to cause any sibling rivalry, is it? Well, after this, things just sort of go back to normal. David goes back out into the field for a while, and there's, there's a small time that he goes to be with Saul to play music. That's another story, but then he's right back out there in the field. Meanwhile, war crops up in Israel, and the three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, are going down to the battle with King Saul. Now, at first, it shapes up like it's going to be a normal, average battle, just like every other battle. You've got one army over here on the hillside. You've got one army over here on the hillside. They're about to, at a given signal, rush down into the valley and join battle, army versus army, going to be just like every other battle everybody's familiar with. And then all of a sudden, somebody throws a gigantic monkey wrench into the works. They hear, duh, 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 duh. 
And this gigantic human comes stomping down onto the field. The Bible describes him as being nine feet, nine inches tall minimum. And that's if a regular cubit is used. If the cubit of a king is used, it may have been upwards of 11 feet tall. But bare minimum, he's nine feet Nine inches tall, clad in his armor, huge, strong, and really angry. And he comes out there and he begins to shout at the Israelites, Give me a man that we may fight together. I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man. Everybody's going, oh, I don't think so. (laughs) Saul don't want nothing to do with it. Eliab doesn't want anything to do with it. Shammah, Abinadab, ain't nobody want nothing to do with that man. Well, back home, David doesn't know any of this. He's just out there taking care of the sheep. Well, there comes a day when his father says to him, I need you to go carry some sack lunches to your brothers. So he gathers a sack lunches and he goes down there to be with his brothers. And when he's out there with his brothers, here it comes again. Give me a man, David says. How long has he been doing that? 40 days. Why has he not been dead 39 days now? Well, at this point, Eliab pops up. And Eliab has some things to say to little brother. Eliab says, I know thy pride, the naughtiness of thine heart. You come down that you might see the battle. With whom was thou left those few sheep? Don't you want to slap him? (laughs) Now, Eliab has made a serious accusation against David. The accusation he has made is dereliction of duty. David is supposed to be taking care of the sheep. See, this is, an, this is a shepherding family. If they don't take care of the sheep, there's no roof over the head. There's no food on the table. There's no house to live in. So he's accusing David of, of doing wrong to the family by dereliction of duty. You should be there with the sheep. You're wrong, David. You're not taking care of the sheep. But I wonder if there's any justification to that. Let me say this. We read the story of David and Goliath over and over again, and we know all the big characters. We know about David, know about Goliath, know about Saul, Eliab, Abinadab, Shammah. But did you realize there's some other folks in there that don't get mentioned very often? And they sort of change the entire dynamic. Look with me in verse 20, please. Let me show you what I mean. First Samuel 17, 20. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a, what's the word? keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him and he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle for Israel and the Philistines to put the battle in array army against army and David left his carriage in the hand of the what keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren now can I paint to you the picture that scripture paints in these few short words David, again, back home, knows nothing of what's going on there at the battle. All he knows is dad has said to him, I need you to go take your brother some lunch. So before David goes, though, he realizes he's got some loose ends he's got to tie up. He can't just leave things like they are. So David says to a guy, he says, look, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to watch the sheep while I'm gone. Because if I leave and the sheep are not watched, wolves are going to get them, lions, bears, whatever. Sheep are going to be eaten up by the time we get, by the time we get back. Can't do that. I need you to watch the sheep. Can you do that? What are you going to do? Watch sheep, thank you very much. Then David comes to another guy. He says, I need you to ride with me down there to the battlefield because we're taking all this carriage down there, all this material, bad neighborhood. If we leave it alone, it'll be stripped down to bare nothing by the time I get back. Hubcaps will be gone, seats all messed up. I, I, need, I need you to stay there with the carriage while I go find my brothers. Can you do that? 
Fantastic. So David leaves home that day, and as he leaves home that day, he looks back, and that guy is faithfully watching the sheep. So David puts it out of his mind. David goes down there to the battlefield. He gets there. He gets out of the carriage. He says, now, what did what, 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 what we say you can do? You're going to stay at the carriage. So David takes a few steps away from the carriage. David looks, and he's not worried anymore because that guy is taking care of the carriage. Now, it is a few minutes thereafter, David hears it. Give me a man that we may fight together. And instantly, all of David's focus, all of his attention is on that guy out there running his mouth about God and the armies of God. He's not thinking about the sheep because that guy's watching the sheep. He's not thinking of the carriage because that guy's watching after the carriage. And David begins to speak. Well, well, what is this uncircumcised Philistine doing? Defying the armies of the living God. And then Eli pops up. I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. Thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many of you have older brothers and younger brothers and younger sisters and older sisters? Y'all got siblings? How many, you, you parents. You, you parents have multiple children? You parents have multiple children. You know that when your children start fighting, it's always really just a quick thing and done, right? <laughs> I have three children. And I found out something. When they start arguing, especially, God bless them, the two girls. When they, when they start arguing, one of them will state her position and the other one will state the opposing position. Then the first one goes back and changes up all the words and restates the exact same position. And then the second one pops up and restates all the words and says the exact other position. And after like 17 hours, they're still talking about the exact same thing. And I finally have to say, enough! Nobody says anything else or everybody's going to die. Because it just keeps going and going and never stops, man. These sibling rivalries, they take forever to get any arguments done. But here is Eliab. He finds out thy pride, the naughtiness of thy heart. Thou art come down. Thou might see the battle. And David says, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turns from him to another. Just like that. He has just ended a sibling argument that quickly. How is he so focused as to end a sibling argument that quickly under those circumstances? I'll tell you why. Because he's not even thinking about the sheep. You know why? Because of that guy. He's not worried about the carriage. You know why? Because of that guy. Well, the words that he speaks get quickly to King Saul. And now he is summoned to come before the king. And I don't care who you are. That's scary. David goes in before the king and the king begins to give his expert pronouncement. He says, you can't go fight against him. You're just a youth and he a man of war from his youth. And David says, look king, it's like this. I was out in the field taking care of the sheep and there came a lion and a bear snatched the sheep, hide the flock. I went out after him, came off the top rope, suplex, figure four, pile drive, put him in the arm bar. I mean, whooped him down in the power of the Lord and I'm telling you, the same God that gave me victory over the lion and over the bear will give me victory over this uncircumcised Philistine and Saul says go and the Lord be with thee wow he has just gotten the experts to go along with his evaluation how has he been so successful in getting the experts to go along with what he thinks I'll tell you why because he's not worried about the sheep you know why because of that guy he's not even considering the carriage you know why because of that guy well David at that point has to get some armaments because they've tried Saul's armor and that has been a disaster of epic proportions Saul seven feet tall David probably five two five three may, may look like a bad episode of the tin man and David says listen I, I can't wear this I've not proved it so David takes his stick and his sling goes down to the brook picks out five perfectly smooth stones five perfect stones for his AR-15 slingshot I mean just the exact right caliber man and how is he able to be so focused as to not grab the first thing he can find I got news for you 79 foot 9 coming after me I'm grabbing the first thing I can find and the biggest one of them 
And David, David picks out these perfect five stones. How is he able to have that composure? I'll tell you why. He's not worried about sheep. You know why? Because of that guy. He's not thinking about the carriage. You know why? Because of that guy. David runs out there and Goliath sees him coming. And when Goliath sees him coming, Goliath pitches a conniption, hissy fit. Now, northerners may not understand that, but southerners get that. Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, coming after me with a stick. Oh, it's on. I'm telling you, it's on now, Jack. Who do you think I am? I'm going to take your head off and whoop you with it. I mean, Goliath is coming unglued, man. He is livid. And David says to him, Thou come to me with a sword and a shield and a spear, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. I mean, David has just the exact right words to say. He's not nervous. He's not jumbled. He's not getting tongue-tied. Why? Because he's focused on the moment. How's he so focused? Because he's not worried about the sheep. Why is he not worried about the sheep? Because of that guy. He's not thinking about the carriage. You know why? Because of that guy. David then begins to run, not away, but toward the army to meet him, and and he is whipping the slingshot around as he goes. Now we always assume some things that may or may not be true but the scripture doesn't actually say them. We assume that God directed the flight of the rock. But the Bible doesn't say that. It just says that David slaying the rock hit Goliath in the forehead. There's a spot about this big that he had to hit in between the spots of the armor. He is on the run with a slingshot. He hits a one in a billion shot to take Goliath down. How is he able to have such anger such composure, such focus. I tell you why. He's not worried about the sheep because that guy's taking care of him. He's not even thinking about the carriage because that guy's taking care of him. David destroys him, cuts his head off. You ask me who destroyed Goliath. You ask me who won the battle over Goliath. I'm going to tell you David and that guy and that guy. Because David literally could not have even been there to do what he did if it weren't for that guy and for that guy. By the way, the title of the message is, Thank God for the Keepers. Now may I just make some applications here. We have somehow managed to produce the most diva-like generation of Christians that I've ever seen. It used to be that the Baptist National Anthem was called Amazing grace. Now it's a little more like, I am so beautiful to me. Can't you see? I'm everything I hope for. I'm everything I need. I am so beautiful to me. You laugh, but you tell me that's not what it's getting like. We have reached the place where everybody has to have the limelight. Everybody has to be noticed. Everybody has to be acclaimed. And not everybody can be the giant keeper, all at the same, giant slayer all at the same time. Somewhere along the line, there's got to be some keepers. The work of God gets paralyzed, not for lack of giant killers usually, but for lack of keepers. You know, can I just say some things? I've been pastoring for 21 years now in my church. And I thank God for the keepers. I mean, the people that just do the stuff that doesn't really get noticed very much. I, I thank God for the nursery keepers. I had to keep the nursery one time. That's a long story and a horrible story. I'm just telling you, 
I thank God for nursery keepers. You know what you're doing? All you're doing is making sure that young mothers have the opportunity to come in and hear the gospel undisturbed and undistracted so they can get born again. I thank God for security keepers. If you would just quietly keep people safe. I've often said that if you want to attract every crazy person in five counties, start a church somewhere in North Carolina. We started our church June 1st, 1997. We attracted the crazies pretty quickly. And after about a year, I got a call early one Sunday morning. A girl about 20 years old screaming in the phone, Preacher, he's got a gun. He's beating on the door. He's going to get in. He's going to kill me. I knew who she was talking about, her crazy ex-boyfriend who was part of all that was going on in the church. And, and, and I said, call 911 and then call so-and-so. He's just right down the road. He can get there quicker than I can. I'll get there as fast as I can. And man, I got in the car and, and burned rubber, got there as quick as I could. And, and when I got there, I love law enforcement. God bless them. But this guy made a mistake. This guy said, I got there in time to see him. See him say, boy, you got a gun? The guy said, yeah, yeah. Beating on the door, trying to get in with it? Yeah. He said, let me see the gun, boy. The guy showed him the gun. He said, put it in your pocket and go home. Oh. That was a mistake right there, man. So the guy left with the gun, and the young lady said, preacher, what am I going to do? I'm scared to death. I said, come on to church. Safest place in the world you'll be. Surely he wouldn't be stupid enough to show his head around there today. And if he does, we've got plenty of big folks there to handle it. Don't worry about it. Come, and you'll be safe. So she came on to church, and I didn't figure he'd come, but, you know, just in case, I got a couple of my security guys, and I told them what had happened. I said, surely he wouldn't show up, but if he does, just be aware of what's happened and handle it. About halfway through service, she was sitting on the next to the back row. He came in the back doors, sat right behind her. When he did, my two security guys came in from one side of the pew and the other side of the pew, and they went, and did this number to him. I mean, squashed on him, man. And they sat there just squashed up against him the entire time. And I preached the message and came time to the invitation. I said, let's all stand. His eyes are closed. And everybody stood. And he, didn't, he didn't bow his head. He didn't close his eyes. He just glared at me and glared at her and glared at me and glared at her. And then about half through the invitation, I saw him reach in the pocket where I knew that gun was. And when he did, my two security guys, who also knew where the gun was, did this number even tighter. And then they both went. And when they did that, he turned as white as that shirt. His hands started shaking. He pulled them out real slow and did this number and then put them on the pew. And I'm up here going, if you died today, do you know? For <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank God for security keepers. I went to preach a meeting in Lincoln to North Carolina. I was the first one there at 6 o'clock. I was supposed to be there about 7. About 6.10, a blind guy tapped in the back door, turned right when he got inside the back door, tapping down the, down, down the inside the auditorium, went to the thermostat and started fiddling with the thermostat. I thought, this ain't going to be well. This, ain't, this can't be good. After a few minutes, it started feeling perfect in there. I said, man, this guy nailed it. So after the service, I asked the preacher, I said, can, what can you tell me about the blind guy that handles a thermostat. He said, you don't know the half of it. I said, what do you mean? He said, him and the lame guy cut the grass. I said, come on, man. You're pulling my leg. Stop that. He said, no, I'm dead serious. He said, they live beside the church, father and son. The blind guy gets over there to where his dad is in the wheelchair. They get the weed eater, fire it up. Dude in the weed eater says, straight, 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 turn. Straight, straight. He said, we got the license, nicest lawn in Lincoln, North Carolina. And the blind guy and the lame guy cut it. You know what they are? 
They're just keepers. Just keepers. Can I tell you, if you're ever going to be a keeper, three things you're going to need. Three simple things. Number one, you're going to have to have the ability to faithfully be a keeper, even if everybody else is unfaithful at their keeping. Let me give you something interesting grammatical from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards. Is that singular, singular or plural? Plural. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man... Is that singular or plural? Singular. Moreover, it is required in stewards, plural, that a man, singular, be found faithful. Why didn't he say it's required in stewards that men must be faithful? Here's why. Because though faithfulness is expected of the entire corporate body, it is an individual responsibility. And if you're ever going to be a keeper, you're going to have to be faithful even when others aren't faithful. Number two, if you're ever going to be a keeper, you're going to have to be willing to do all to the glory of God. First Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you have to be noticed, if you have to be seen, you will never be a keeper. You'll never be anything more than a diva. Number three, you have to be willing to be a part of the machinery instead of the entire machine. Ephesians 4.16 speaks of all the parts of the body fitly joined together, supplying that which everyone needs in life. Listen to me, what he's saying is this. God needs everybody doing something. And when everybody's little something is put together, great big things happen. We had a funeral in our church about six months ago. Broke my heart. This lady had been a member of our church for about... 19 out of the 20 years, her name was Brenda, Brenda Worley. Sweetest lady, tough lady, but a sweet lady. We got there to the funeral home with her family. The funeral director began to ask about her. He said, she'd been in your church for 19 years. Did she teach Sunday school? Her husband, Chuck, said, no. He said, did she sing in the choir? No. Did she uh, help with the youth programs? No. Did she do any cleaning? No. And the guy was starting to get perplexed because everybody does something. Usually they've got to find something to put in the paper. So he looked over at me, and I was already grinning. He looked at me and said, what, preacher? I said, fudge. I said, she was our chief fudge officer. If you were discouraged, there's about a 99% chance she's going to find out about it and show up with fudge. If you weren't discouraged, there's about a 65% chance she's still showing up with fudge. Everybody there missed her so grievously. Because she just took this one little thing that she knew how to do, and she just did it. From the pulpit to the pew, God expects every one of us to be keepers. You know, a lot of pastoring is just being a keeper. There's a lot of places you're going to pastor where it's pretty much 99.9% just being a keeper. God needs keepers. If he didn't need you there, he wouldn't have put you there. God needs keepers but everybody seems to think that's so insignificant. Listen to me, it's more significant than you'll ever know. You know, the work of God needs a lot of things. It needs revival, no question about it. it. Needs resurrection, holiness, no question about it. But one thing it desperately needs is for everybody to do these two things. Number one, go before the Lord and say, God, what do you want me to do? Great or small, known or unknown, how can I help here where you've placed me? Then number two, get up from the altar and go to your pastor. Say, Pastor, what needs doing? Trash picked up? Somebody fed? Somebody clothed? Something handled? What, what needs doing? I don't, I don't have to have anybody know. Just tell me what needs doing. 
You know who beats a giant? The giant killer and the keeper and the keeper and the keeper and the keeper and the keeper. Thank God for the keepers. So I'll stand as my closing. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. I wonder if you're here today and you say, Preacher, I'm saved. No question about it. Would you slip your hand up where I can see it? God bless you.